Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If anything could change, what would it be? I probably wouldn't be so outspoken. I probably would lead a little lower profile and uh, not have a lot to say. But as far as the courts and the country, I, you know, I have no bitterness. I mean, I, I still think it's the greatest court system and the greatest country in the world, but they still leave a lot to be desired. Time was finally up for Mike Thebus. By December 1974, he had exhausted all his appeals and was left with no other options. Thevis was headed to a federal prison for the next eight and a half years. Seated in a wheelchair with Joanne by his side, Thevis gave a last hurrah to reporters. And get some operations done at the government's expense and try to be a model prisoner. Get home to my wife and five kids as soon as I can. Maybe write some songs. Try to put my mind to work. There's a chance that you're coming home for Christmas. I think the chances of coming home for Christmas are just about nil. I don't think there's any chance. It's not worth money. If I have to buy my freedom, I could have probably done that a long time ago. How? Political friends and so forth. I never did do that. I don't see no reason to do it this day and age. Who are some of them? (laughs) No comment. Instead of living the good life at Lionsgate with his wife and five children, Thevis' future as a business leader, husband, and father was now up in the air. Tony Thevis was only eight years old at the time when his dad left for prison. He went in in December 74. He got an eight-and-a-half-year sentence for interstate transportation of obscene material. And he used to tell us, I remember this as clear as day, he said, once they get me in here and they've gotten me in here, they're not going to ever let me out. He always told me he was never afraid of prison and he was never afraid of the government and that what he was doing was not wrong. As daunting as the eight-and-a-half-year prison sentence sounded, Thevis was certain he would get out early and be back running things again outside the prison walls. Roger Dean Underhill was in the hospital. His appendix had burst, and he was in bad shape. And he was going downhill quickly. It was August of 1974. He had been transported to Clayton County Hospital from jail. Underhill had been arrested after police pulled him over on a routine traffic stop and found a collection of guns in the trunk. The next day, his appendix burst. A surprise guest paid him a visit at the hospital. FBI Special Agent Paul King. He was there to see if he could get a deathbed confession from Roger. 
King confronted Underhill and said this might be his last chance to come clean on the whole thing. While he was in jail, FBI agents tried to get him to testify against Thebus. The FBI had been tracking Underhill for years, and they offered him a deal for testifying and sharing information on Thebus. They wanted to know about the Kentucky arson fire and the murders of Jap Hanna and Jimmy Mays. Underhill would not go against his former boss, but it was unclear if it was driven by loyalty to Thebus or to the organization he represented. Underhill's father was with Roger in the hospital room. Agent King asked him to step outside, and King tried to convince him that his son should cooperate and do the right thing. Roger wasn't having it, and he refused. He wasn't going to cooperate, and he wasn't going to die. The FBI, of course, is telling Underhill, Thievis wants to get you, and you have to come clean uh, with all you know, and it'll save you. But the FBI wasn't the only one that knew of Underhill's stay at the hospital. Mike Thievis smelled a rat. In the original Godfather movie, it was Michael Corleone that went to the hospital to check on his father. The guards looking after Vito had been sent home for the night. He was left with no protection, and Michael knew he had to move him out of harm's way. Thevis then sends two hitmen with silencer weapons. By the way, the Godfather movie had already come out at this point when this stuff was unfolding, but the idea that they're roaming the hospital, they want to take out Underhill. Just two years after the movie came out, Underhill now found his own life at risk at the hospital. Two men wandered the hallways of the hospital, looking for their man. They carried guns with silencers and wanted to have a word with Roger. The men walked right by Underhill's room. But in each of three visits, they had to abort their attempt. Underhill had protection. A U.S. Marshal sat outside his room. The men were afraid they would also have to kill him, so they aborted their hit. Despite being loyal to Thevis for all those years, Underhill now feared for his life. What exactly was Underhill going to do about it? There's the word that maybe his right-hand henchman has turned on him. This is in federal court prosecutors hint as much. The civil case in Louisville, Kentucky, they subpoena Roger Dean Underhill and the fellow that worked with him, and they talk in the deposition, which is not good manners. They don't plead the fifth. So they're tattling. So the first rumblings that something different was happening with the Thevis Empire were the mention of this guy, Roger Dean Underhill, was testifying against him, at least in a civil case. Nat Balin was not going to go quietly after the arson fire in 1970. He filed a civil suit, and Underhill was one of three witnesses that testified. Balin had a very determined lawyer who actually won a substantial civil judgment against Thevis based on the testimony of two of his henchmen. One was this guy, Roger Dean Underhill, and the other was a fellow named Wilson who worked with him. Underhill and Clifford Wilson both talked about their role in the arson fire in Louisville. 
and the connection to Mike Thevis. Underhill had not kept quiet. Word that he was talking was now on the street, that he was part of the arson fire, and authorities could finally start to pin this back on Thevis. Thevis was not happy. When Paul King showed up at the hospital that day to try and get a confession out of Underhill, it wasn't the first time Underhill had been approached by the FBI. His testimony in the Louisville arson case could now be seen as a threat to his well-being. But that didn't mean he was ready to flip. Underhill was difficult, making outrageous demands to agents before he would agree to become an informant. One agent said he had never seen a list of demands like this in his entire career. Sure, he asked for immunity. That wouldn't be a problem. He wanted a new place to live and work, like witness protection. He wanted plastic surgery to actually change his appearance. He was in jail at the time in Sandstone, Minnesota. He wanted to get out of jail and for that sentence to be over. He was having trouble with his marriage and was looking at an upcoming divorce and wanted help getting his children back to get them back before he disappeared. Incredibly, Underhill also wanted to get back in business with Thebus to get back the money that was owed to him. He knew Thebus had tried to have him killed, but still, Underhill pushed ahead, insisting he could not only get the money back from Thebus, but that he could get some good information for the feds along the way. Roger had a tough guy facade, but inside he feared more and more for his life each day. He didn't know what Thebus might do next. Even with Thebus in prison, Underhill felt like he was being followed, that all eyes were on him, no matter where he went. Paul King had been working the case against Thebus for years. King wanted to interview Underhill, but Roger always said no. King was persistent. Slowly, he got to know Roger. Tried to interview him two or three times over the years. And neither thanks, but no thanks. And then when it really came to light, and we had, and I think so did he, Roger, information that he was, was trying to kill him. I think that's when he, that was enough is enough. And that's when he came to me. He was, I would say, just an average person. He was pretty intelligent, and I don't think he was a member of Menta, but he was smart for what he did. And he was, of course, to law enforcement, he was very polite. It was early January 1977, and after all the years of talking and negotiating, King and Underhill finally sat in a room with a tape recorder in front of them and began to talk. Roger asked, What kind of fool am I to protect this man? What kind of friend is this? Save the man's life, save his little son's life from choking to death. Roger remembered the day of the motorcycle accident and the day he saved young Tony Thevis's life. How could Mike Thevis not want him dead? King started with the Hannah murder from the time that Roger woke up that morning and got the phone call to his work in helping Thevis dispose of the weapons. Roger shared his detailed description of what happened the day of the murder. He told King that he had recorded a conversation with Thebus the day of the murder of Jap Hanna. He said he was concerned for his own safety and hit a recorder on his body. He asked Thebus about Hanna, and Thebus told him he had shot him in cold blood. Underhill said to King, What if this guy shoots me just because I have the knowledge of this? Underhill told King that he took the tape and made an extra copy, hiding one in his home behind a painting that hung in his dining room. 
and he hid another copy in a warehouse he rented. But Underhill had spent time in prison himself since the 1970 murder, and while he was gone, the painting and the tapes disappeared. The feds looked for the tapes, but found nothing. Roger kept going. Underhill told King that a stranger showed up at his house one night, a man that called himself a friend of Thevis. He came to the garage, knocking on the back door. The man said, I think you ought to sell out your share of the stock to Thevis, because he said, the same thing could happen to you. This is just a friendly conversation we had, and maybe I'll be seeing you later sometime. Underhill stood in the garage, mouth open, stunned by the conversation with the stranger. A few days later, after the visit from the mysterious stranger, Underhill told King he had gone into the office early that morning. He was there before the secretary came in. He walked back by Thevis's office and was waiting outside. He heard Thevis talking to someone and heard Thevis say, Well, if Underhill doesn't sell this peep show stock, I'm going to have to kill him. Underhill had heard about all the attempts on his life, but now he finally heard Thevis' death wish with his own ears. Defended Thevis really up to almost the bitter end when he found out that Thevis was trying to have him killed, and that's when he sent somebody to see me. A lot of people knew I was supposed that Roger was cooperating because he couldn't really keep a secret that well. And we concentrated on him because Thevis had tried to kill him a couple times. Roger was finally in the mood to put an end to that. I don't know this for a fact, but I think that if Thevis would have just abandoned trying to kill him, he probably would have never testified against him because he was pretty loyal to Thevis. He really knew everything that was happening in Thevis's organization. So once he believed me when I told him that Thevis was the one I tried to have him killed, which he was, Roger just flipped and started cooperating. King and Underhill drove together to the banks of the Chattahoochee River. It was cold, and there was snow on the ground that day. King took a photo of Underhill on the riverbank. He had a wig on and sunglasses. Underhill motioned toward the river, pointing to the spot where he said he had dropped the gun, the screwdrivers, and the Mexican coins on the night of the Hannah murder seven years earlier. The water was cold, and the current was strong. Agents wore wetsuits, and one diver held onto a rope while he made the dive down to the bottom of the river. They recovered a pan lodged between two large boulders. The pan had a large glob of metal still in it, and Mexican coins, screwdriver parts, and car keys. Remarkably, seven years after being dumped in the river, the FBI had found the murder weapon. It was right where Underhill said it was. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thevis had bragged about his operation and his success, often angering his competition. While the government had been keeping track of Thevis since the late 60s, obsessing over his connections with organized crime and his porn business, Paul King said it was the murders that the FBI most wanted answers on. Well, there's a bunch of people that are complaining about it because most of the pornography guys in the country, they just kept a low key. They were killing people and stuff like that. And things were fine because the porno wasn't high on the government's list or the local cops. They had more to do than that. I think he could have made it if he didn't kill people and stuff like that. I think he just got caught up with the fact that that was the way you're supposed to act if you were a gangster type. But, you know, Roger was just the opposite of it. I got to know Roger really well. I think when Thevis started putting out orders to get people killed, Roger knew that was going to be the end of their operations. But when we started finding out, basically they tried to kill, uh, he tried to have Roger killed. And when it failed, I had been interviewing Roger's wife off and on. Then she convinced, I guess, him. He didn't tell me this. But somebody talked to him and must have told him to come to the government because he did. But I never asked him. And his wife wasn't like Thevis's wife. Thevis's wife wasn't involved that much in the operations, but I think she was kind of proud. They had all the money in the big house. While Mike Thevis had found himself constantly in the spotlight, outside of the government, very few knew about Roger Dean Underhill. So who was Underhill? And of course, we wanted to talk to him. And what we did was we went through records. He had a couple of companies himself. He owned some land on the Chattahoochee River. And part of, I think, the tax bill was going to his parents in Arizona. And what we did is we were able to locate his parents. We called them up and they hemmed and hawed, didn't really talk. We said, we'd like to talk to your son or we can't help you. Well, predictably, the phone rang and it's Roger Dean Underhill. What are you calling my parents? Don't do this. Rumbling, angry, screaming, threatening. Lieberman and Stewart were talking to Underhill and Roger slowly started to open up. You let him spew and then he starts talking about Mike Thevis. And yes, in fact, he was turning on Thevis could tell he was telling what he had done. What had happened was that very good prosecutors were doing a divide and conquer, and they would tell Underhill that they knew he was involved in, there were two killings, and that Thevis, who had been arrested and actually convicted in a pornography case, was trying to say that Underhill had done this. Thevis would say, how dumb are you? They're just telling you this line, it's a con job. Well, Underhill believed it and he was not going to go down or just being uh, accessory. Roger Dean Underhill is just this henchman who works on these machines. He's a locksmith. 
By his own account, he helps carry out violent acts, arson, accessory to murder, and so on and so forth. And yes, Thevis is, is living large. Underhill complains he's not getting his fair share. He feels like he's being screwed. Thevis had cut Underhill out of the action, and though Roger attempted over and over again to renegotiate with Mike, Thevis wouldn't budge. Underhill even filed a civil lawsuit of his own, attempting to get the money he thought he deserved. He was angry, and he wanted his fair share. Underhill was also drawing his own mythology about the unseemly acts he had done with Thevis, even if he hadn't been the man to pull the trigger. How does Roger Dean Underhill describe his own role in helping with this body, dispose of it? The important line for him in his own account is, I never touched the body. Don't tell anyone that I touched the body because that absolves you. Your boss, by his own account, kills someone. You help dispose of the body in the trunk of a car. I didn't touch it. So that is an important distinction. This is the way the mind works. So Roger Dean Underhill calls us on the phone and his complaint leads to him spewing. And we say, we'd like to meet you. No, I'm not going to meet you, so on and so forth. You try to take it to the next level. We were preparing a series of stories on the Thevis Empire, which now looked to be unraveling. There were three acts of violence. One was the arson fire, the competitor. The second was the shooting of Jap Hanna. And the third was the blowing up of James Jimmy Mays, who had also helped build the peep shows. So you had these three episodes, and authorities were trying to tie Thevis to them. So we were writing now the whole saga of Thevis, establish himself as, you know, wealthy semi-celebrity, because people sort of like gangster chic. Well, this was puncturing that image. Was he really just another thug? We filled up however many pages of the newspaper over three days. And after that came out, we get a call again from Roger Dean Underhill, partially complaining about how he had been depicted, but it really wasn't so bad. And now he wanted to meet with us after the fact. Typical of a lot of the way these characters work is they always negotiate. I mean, he, he clearly already had been turning into a government witness. In one of the criminal cases that Underhill faced, he has two psychiatrists testify that he's a troubled man. Among other things, he's paranoid. He thinks the government is out to get him, and he thinks people are trying to kill him. Well, I mean, the government was out to get him, and people were trying to kill him. So, was he a little bit, how should we say, not quite at the 100% mark on the sanity scale? Yes. I mean, this was the profession he had chosen, and he was really wired up. I mean, he was just intense. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Remember Big Bill Scarborough, the man who worked with Jimmy Mays? 
the man that was there the night that Mays was blown up in his van? Big Bill said Underhill's personality was always changing. It was fair one day and cloudy the next. One day, he was sitting loading cartridges at Vendivision, and Roger came up to him with something in his hand. It was the size of a pen. Bill asked what it was. Roger replied, I won't tell you, but I will show you. Bill said Underhill shot him with tear gas. Bill was in pain and had to take the rest of the afternoon off. He was like a kaleidoscope, said Big Bill. Each way you turn him, you see a different Roger. You turn him a different way, you see a different Roger. Despite the mental state of Underhill, Paul King kept talking to him, doing interviews over the course of many years. Roger was a funny person. I'm just trying to think how I would describe it. I think he enjoyed the gangster side that he thought. I think if he hadn't have been so loyal to Davis, that if he just quit, he would have been fine the rest of his life. It wasn't until it got real personal and they tried to kill him and some other folks that came to me and called me and said he needed to meet me. And of course, we were a little leery of that, but it turned out that he didn't have any ill intentions. Uh, once he came on our side, he stayed on our side. I think he got in too deep, but that's just a guess. Underhill knew the area around the Chattahoochee River well. He owned land right on the riverbank. Underhill had an idea and once again reached out to Paul Lieberman and Jim Stewart. He was going to meet with us, but he wanted to negotiate. What he wanted was he owned this piece of land on the Chattahoochee River, and he was hoping the Atlanta Constitution would fund the development of it. After months of conversations and negotiations, an in-person meeting was arranged at the newspaper. Well, he was wired up. They had a flowered shirt, I mean, bald on top, and he just was tight. So he wants to meet and he wants us to fund development of his land on the Chattahoochee River. Absolutely absurd. We did tell him we're not going to do that. We can't. But we, we actually brought an attorney to our first meeting with him. Now, you don't lie to a news source. And this was so preposterous that we were going to go in business with a guy who, by his own account, had helped dispose of the body. This was Never Never Land absurdity. Guy coming where in his mind he thinks a newspaper is going to go in business with him funding $250,000 to develop this property. Then that was, folks, a lot of money. Not like it would be the equivalent probably of a million and a half, two million today. Underhill wasn't just there to talk about Phoebus, though. He wanted to present a new business deal to the newspaper. He wanted a loan for $250,000. Some of this would be for his living expenses, and some of it would be to develop the 14-acre property. Give us credit. We didn't say, maybe we will if you do X, Y. We said, no, we're not going to do that. What we did do is say, we'll find some people we know. We know people in the real estate business, and we'll hook you up with them. Now, the land 
as far as we knew, maybe was not even in his name. It was laundered because he had a lot of legal troubles over the years. So it was probably a pipe dream. When you meet with people like that, their lives, you know, are in danger. We promised we're going to talk to some real estate people and get them to meet with him and now tell us what you can. And he did. So he went on with many more stories, including this amazing tale of taking a shard of bone and wanting to make a paperweight out of it in uh, Lucite, Pathevis. He described, I think once again in more detail, helping dispose Jap Hanna's body, blowing up the other fellow. And, and he also talked about his own life, again, in a sympathetic way as a self-made man. And, you know, now he was going to take the fall for someone else. Underhill was talking to Lieberman and Stewart and to the FBI. But there was one move that Underhill still wanted to make, and it was going to be done in secret. In June 1977, Roger Underhill took a flight to Springfield, Missouri. He was joined by his attorney, Roger Thompson. Underhill and Thompson met an FBI agent at the airport, jumped in a government vehicle, and went to a nearby motel. More agents were at the motel, and they fitted Underhill with a new pair of black dress shoes. The shoes had a transmitter in the heel with a tiny hole that could activate the transmitter with just a paperclip. They went into the institution where Thevis was being held and met Mike Baker, Thevis' attorney. And Thevis himself in a conference room. Thevis placed his finger to his lips and pointed to the ceiling. He thought the room was bugged. There had been strange activity around the institution that day, and he didn't feel comfortable talking in that room. Both attorneys left the room. Mike Phoebus and Roger Dean Underhill were together again, and they were alone. No lawyers and no guns. If Thebus wanted to kill Underhill right there and then, he was going to have to do it with his bare hands. Each man knew what the other was thinking. Underhill had talked, and Thebus had tried to kill him. They looked each other in the eye. Their friendship, long since forgotten, had been replaced with bitterness and anger. Gangster House is created, written, and hosted by me, Jason Hope, and is a production of Imperative Entertainment. Shane Freeman is lead engineer with additional editing and production support by myself, Jasmine Cross, and Stephen Warner with audio mixing provided by Resonate Recordings. Recording sessions at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta. Claire Martin and Elizabeth Egan are story editors. Cover art and design by Trevor Eiler. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. Original music score by Brandon Bush. The Old Days Are Gone, performed by Law and written by Steve Acker. Originally released in 1975 by GRC. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Ginn Music Group. 
Chevy Van, performed and written by Sammy Johns, originally released in 1973 by GRC. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc., music licensed from Ginn Music Group. Jefferson Lee, performed and written by Sammy Johns, previously unreleased. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc., music licensed from Ginn Music Group. Love the songs from Gangster House? Check out the new playlist on Spotify. Just search Gangster House. Some segments recorded using actors to recreate scenes based on this true story. For more information, exclusive photos, or tips on this story, visit GangsterHouse.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Gangster House. If you love the show, tell a friend and leave a review. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.